This episode of the Hardman Podcast is brought to you by Salt and Strings Butchery. Order your custom beef bundle today. It's also brought to you by Private Family Banking, helping Christians take dominion through privatized banking. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by Backwards Planning Financial, building multi-generational wealth with Joe Garrisey. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and joined today by Mr. Nate Fisher from New Founding. Nate, thanks for joining me for this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. Well, Nate, we've had a lot to talk about in the news, lots happening. I want to start with one thing that I found particularly interesting. I know you commented uh, on it on Twitter, but Oliver Anthony, what is going on with this hillbilly from Appalachia? Why are so many people resonating with this song? Uh, first, I will disclaim any expertise with this. I am not, uh, I think, I am not, I did not grow up listening to country music. I'm not a expert in the genre, and I would say I'm not, uh, I am not probably the target audience for that. So uh, I think there's people who could, uh, there, there's people who could uh, answer that more personally than I can. What I think resonates, what really seems to me to be be the case here is, you have this uh, this recurring theme where the mainstream, uh, in many many sectors, including including uh, that segment of music, has become deeply disconnected from the actual psyche and themes of the the actual uh, I guess interests and desires of the target market. So it's not surprising when you have an industry that is out of step that someone who says something. Uh, that's not being said and resonates is going to who, who's from outside of that establishment is going to rapidly take off and rapidly grow. And I think you have digital uh, it shows the power of Twitter, right? Twitter can allow something like that to spread probably faster than uh, things have historically spread uh, pre digital age, pre uh, pre networks uh, and can do so outside of channels, outside of the approved gatekeeper channels. So I think at the macro level, that's how I'm looking at it. Again, I'm also coming as a, a venture investor and, and businessman in this space, rather than as a member of the target audience who can tell you why it resonates with me. But I, I recognize that it hits a lot of themes that are not being uh, not being hit by, by a lot of people who I... Uh, uh, you could say whose job it it should be to reach those people. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, do you see it as sort of a, I guess at least high watermark or rising marker of where populism is in America? A lot of people said maybe after Trump, it's dying. Uh, it seems like with some of these things, uh, like with the song, there's there's a strong discontent uh, between a lot of Americans and the I guess you would call it the ruling class. Um, do you see that at play here? I think it's 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 very clear, and it's very clear that it, it applies to the conservative movement. I forget who it was who uh, came up with this, but I uh, even National Review wrote a piece that was uh, that was criticizing this. Uh, just a typical sort of stupid piece you would expect from Con Inc. And uh, someone labeled them uh, "North of Richmond" online, <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's it's both geographically and spiritually true. So uh, I think you have you have a uh, you, you have an establishment and you have an establishment right, and both of those are are out of touch with uh, what a lot of people are are feeling. Yeah, do you do you see anything changing there uh, on that front in terms of you, you think there will be you know people who are part of that conservative ink 
who say we have a problem, we should adjust, or do you see them doubling down, keeping the same course? What do you see happening there? I don't know that they change, but I also don't know how relevant they are increasingly. So I think you'll have a lot of people who are never going to change, but they're going to just lose their status as uh, they're going to lose their status as gatekeepers. Absolutely. And they'll, once they lose their status as gatekeepers, they'll pretty ra- rapidly lose even their market share and their, uh, th- their influence on the market. I mean, they'll, they'll continue to reach a bunch of, you know, I think an increasingly aging and uh, narrow, uh, narrow audience. But uh, I, in, in many ways, I think, on the conservative movement, they're already they're already uh, a, a niche player rather than power player. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, you know, one of the other things that was going on in the news, uh, obviously, everything with Trump legally. Uh, you had some comments on that on Twitter. I, I'm wondering if these things are connected uh, with the the harder sort of the regime pushes and the elites push, uh, particularly you know what's perceived by many to be a witch hunt uh, for Trump. Do you think it? causes the populist movement to to heat up? Do, do you see that people are, maybe new leadership arises? What do you think happens there? It's a tough question. I, in terms of what causes the populist movement to heat up, I, I would say there's sort of, there's two, there's two strands. There's populism, and populism I think is a means in some ways. There's a lot of people who are very dissatisfied with, uh, they're dissatisfied with the present elites and they're inclined to follow populist messages. I also think there's sort of general dissent from the regime. And I would say that that goes beyond beyond straight populism. I mean, you see the Christian nationalist discourse, and a lot of that is 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 straight up. Uh, it, it's not populist. I mean, they are fully in favor of an alternative elite and, and arguably, I think, uh, challenge the egalitarianism and the anti, uh, anti-hierarchical uh, doctrines of uh, liberalism. Uh, so I don't know if I would classify that as populist, but I think that uh, on both sides, you see a growing skepticism of the system, whether it's whether it's populist or whether it's uh, uh, dissident elite or elite discontent. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. One of the things you had tweeted was just talking about how um, a lot of these shows of strength, they really show a fragility so I wonder if you would unpack that for me. What did you mean by that? Um, how how are you seeing that play out? So I would say that they certainly indicate a they they indicate or suggest a fragility at the very least. So I'll, I'll go to kind of two themes there. One is the nature of these shows of strength, and the other is the nature of increasing volatility and change. So uh, sometimes when you need to use more force, there's a there's a great uh, there's a great discussion, or I think it was a podcast by Oren McIntyre talking about Nick Land's, Nick, some of Nick Land's analysis. Nick Land is a very interesting thinker uh, about the dynamics of power. And in the, some uh, probably about a month ago, I think Oren did this and highlighted a point that Land made, which is, is talking about the nature of power and the distinction from force. And how power effectively is what gets people to do what you want without the use of force. And uh, when you need to, and, and that can be many, many forms, he actually uses the ultimate example of that. Uh, one of the ultimate examples of that is fiat currency, where you make something something up that's, in a sense, totally artificial, and it's an indication of power, legitimacy, respect, credibility, all of that, that people will accept it 
uh, as extremely valuable, despite the fact that there is nothing, in a sense, forcing them to do that. No one is pushing them to give you something for money. You'll do so voluntarily. But in many ways, that extends to a dynamic that you can see across many, many domains. And in a sense, the more they have to use force, the less power they have. So you could say that the the need to more and more overtly use at least force or threatened force, right, which is what I what uh, police are using when they uh, they they threaten you with arrest or they arrest you. Uh, they're losing, in a sense, I think, voluntary compliance with a liberal regime uh, that would come from, uh, you, you could say, legitimacy. I think, in a sense, their regime is losing legitimacy. And so they're needing to use more and more hard power. And uh, that is a or hard, hard force, really. Hard power is sort of, I guess you could say, in between those. But to use that terminology... They are they are losing power by that standard, and and they're needing to substitute something that's in a sense more brutal. Now, I think there's a second, uh, and I think that's an interesting theory. I, I I find it very plausible. Again, I don't necessarily strongly adhere to any of these, but when you're looking at the range of outcomes that we can expect, I think understanding uh understanding some uh, paradigms, some some plausible theories is is very helpful. Now, I think there's a more direct uh, example, which is there's no question that they're getting more and more aggressive in what they're doing. Without question, that is a greater sort of volatility from historical norms. Uh, so if you think of historical norms as sort of operating within this constitutional system or operating within this liberal constitutional system, post-60s constitutional system, what have you, uh, for a while, Everything sort of went the way liberals wanted it to, uh, e- even without significant departures from the perceived rule of law and all of that. Increasingly, they're doing things that on a daily, on a monthly, daily basis seem like they're uh, – they're pushing new boundaries, right? They're uh, they're doing something that might have shocked people if five years ago they would have uh, that they, they would have said it. I don't think you had that kind of groundbreaking change in the '90s, for instance, in politics. It was sort of if you had predicted five years ahead what was going to happen, and oh, we're going to have a president impeached because of a sex scandal or something, whatever. That's well within the sort of paradigm of uh, what you expect politics to look like. Now you have attempts to throw your political opponents in jail. Uh, you have attempts to throw their lawyers in jail. You have attempts to do lots of things that I think would have shocked people 10 years ago to hear that this was going to happen. Unquestionably, that is that reflects sort of a greater volatility in the range of political scenarios, political outcomes that I analogize to a stock market at a frothy period. So even though all of these seem to be going in the direction of the left in many ways, we don't have we don't have like clear opposition. We don't have a clear path to how we're going to beat it. Uh, you can imagine it like, I guess I'm getting older now, but the NASDAQ at the peak of the internet bubble would, uh, toward the, the late days of that, you saw these large jumps on a daily basis, sort of a rapid increase in the rate of change there. Even though it was continuing to go up, when you see a situation like that, you recognize that there's higher volatility, and that higher volatility can go both directions. And it also means the sort of reasonable expectation of the range of outcomes uh, in the future goes up on both the positive and the negative. So the analog here is 
everything seems to be going in the direction of the Dems. There's not clear, strong, coherent pushback from the Republicans. Uh, there was over the Trump era, but I think they're 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 pushing back. But even so, they're doing so in ways that are well outside of historical norms. And we can expect that that departure from historical norms will continue. And as we consider the range of possible, uh, let's say, outcomes that go against that, we should also look at a range that extends well outside of historical norms. Do you desire to be shrewd financially for the sake of your family and future generations? Well, we know that a robust society depends on getting this right. Success in building and passing on personal wealth. Let's be mature, responsible leaders with the resources God expects us to turn a profit on, to love our children and children's children well. Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial integrates investments, debt, insurance, tax strategies, and legacy planning in a holistic approach, coaching his clients to act wisely. You can do better than you received. You can affect your family's trajectory and maximize your efforts to set up long-term fruitfulness. Joe starts with your values and goals, then provides impactful counsel to help you form and implement your financial plan. Click on the link in the description for Backwards Planning Financial and contact Joe today to get started. Red meat is a staple of a healthy protein-packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends Quinn and Anthony, and not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meat, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. So if you're thinking strategically, tactically, maybe business, maybe media, maybe it's political, for a consolidated uh, opponent or opponents to arise and be successful, what do you think that they need to do uh, in this particular time? Well, I think there's sort of short term and there's there's longer term. I think that they need to, in many ways, they need to control. One way to navigate volatile periods is to... Uh, I, I think there's two sort of paradigms to think. One is the anti-fragile, and the other is the concentrated and potent. So have a so on the one example, if you're thinking of who's going to be prepared to respond to a situation of high political volatility, it is someone who has very firm control over a lot of resources and a lot of people. Typical sort of great man situations where someone arises, whether it's a military commander, whether it's a uh, uh, another politician, maybe it's someone with a, a great deal of wealth, but someone who has firm executive control over that and is able to uh, 
rapidly move in a situation of great volatility. That that that's obviously the type of situation I would I would look for. Uh, I, I would look for if you're looking for who is going to make a move that potentially counters this. Now, that's not a suggestion. First of all, I don't think there's anyone who would be even in our camp who isn't even close to that position right now. Uh, so that's that's more of a prediction. That's more of an analysis. I mean, it's similar to the analysis that I think Burke made, where in the wake of the or, or in the in the French Revolution, he noted he, he effectively predicted a Napoleon figure uh, rising. So I, I would look for that. Now, in terms of what we want to do, we want to, I think, look much more at the anti-fragile side at this point, which is how do we build institutions and how do we build networks that are protected against against attack, even in a sort of escalated, continued and potentially rapid escalation of the trends that we've been seeing. And that's where I see that, that when I talked at the uh, the, the conference uh, of yours in uh, June, I think it was, that's when I talked about how these high trust networks, high trust, particularly deeply religious, deeply Christian networks, are in some ways uniquely suited to resist that because what they have is something that is intangible and it's very difficult to attack. It's very difficult to regulate. It's very difficult to tax. It's very difficult to attack. So uh, in, in many ways, these sort of high trust networks and communities that are united by vision and values rather than, let's say, united by the power of one man uh, or an institution or an organization are going to be anti-fragile in the face of a regime that is incredibly volatile. Uh, I think another thing, so in terms of what we should build, I would just say invest in building networks that are anti-fragile. Invest in building things that allow you to fork away, uh, to maintain your own path in the face of of a regime that may go after you in more and more lawless ways. Uh, and And do so investing in resources and in in things like trust and community that is difficult for them to confiscate uh and and so that would be that would be the sort of basic level i mean at a very basic level family right community your church those things are difficult to confiscate but i also think that what we what we what we should develop is and this is really what i spent a lot of my time developing is ways of translating those into more and more layers of life like can we add economic layers on top of that can we add we're building a we're building a venture firm we are uh very close to launching a fund. Uh, this fund would be designed to invest in uh, in companies in these communities and in these ecosystems. Uh, are there ways to essentially add economic uh, economic institutions, uh, maybe slightly less anti fragile, but that support this ecosystem and support these goals? Are there ways to flesh out a very clear, very strong alternative vision that can draw people? Uh, when does that vision become real? Maybe it's sort of realized at a small level within some of these communities, but it, it's a vision that is a coherent vision for for what the country could look like. So we have a, a, an alternative to the left. And as you have, uh, I, I think as you have volatility, you are going to have people looking for something firm and attractive. And one of the things that we can offer them is we can offer them a strong, positive vision rooted in Christianity uh, that is, uh, in a sense, is providing a source of both uh, hope and inspiration in a time of uh, of chaos and uncertainty uh, more broadly, and in a, in a time of chaos, uncertainty, and and loss of faith in 
the alternative sort of the the sort of idealistic promises of the alternative right you're you're moving from an era where people idealistically believe in America and in sort of America in this sort of liberal promise that was associated with the American story toward toward a time where all they have is force to protect that and people are are desperately seeking for something else that that they can aspire to that they can that they can work toward that, that that's a vision that feels compelling and I think we can offer them that yeah yeah I think that's a really good point uh, one of the things I also want to ask you about is you think about uh you know platforms and people, uh, who have stood out. Two of the ones I think of are BAP, Bronze Age Pervert, and then also Ren, Rag Nationalist. They're, they interest me in a number of ways. Number one, because the regime hates them. Number two, because so many people have been interested in that content. So I wonder if you would unpack for me, start to unpack, first of all, why are these guys resonating? Why did they climb in so many different, different, very different communities uh, in popularity? Why was the message uh, working with so many different people? So I'll uh, I'll speak to those those two and I'll, I'll keep it a little separate. I think they're often associated with each other and there's certainly parallels in message, parallels in aesthetic. Uh, I don't know the extent to which they share values. I know that I uh, my understanding is raw nationalist at least uh, subscribes in some degree to Christianity. Bronze Age pervert is not. Bronze Age pervert is uh, is a neo pagan. I I think. I don't know if he would embrace the term, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but certainly uh, that would be a, a doctrine that I think he has advocated. What, I think I think exactly what you described, though, to some extent. In some sense, they answer the question. They they are providing uh, firm answers to the question that you you offered, which is what is a different or or what I suggested. Uh, what is a different vision that we can aspire to? And BAP provides a different vision. He has a very, co- in some sense, a fairly coherent, uh, fleshed out, and clearly alternative doctrine uh, of how we should approach life, how we should, uh, what we should value, what we should celebrate, what the good life looks like. I, I would disagree with a lot of those things. Uh, I think that the grounding in paganism, the rejection of Christianity is a problem. Uh, at the same time, uh, aspects of it are clearly directionally correct. There's aspects of it that are they resonate because, as critiques of our of our status quo, as cr- critiques of our our current society, uh, they ring true. They ring true with many many people, including Christians. Certainly, including people who are who have some sort of grounding and sort of natural truth and a recognition that. Uh, in many ways, our society is suppressing a lot of natural truths. So uh, I, I think that explains a lot of appeal of BAP. I think another part of it is just that self-confidence. He's out there and he's unapologetically he's unapologetically offering alternative, despite the fact that the regime rejects it. And that there's a charisma in that. People are drawn to someone. Uh, they're drawn to someone who has the confidence to do that. Now, going to uh, ROG Nationals, going to Ren, particularly, I think there's a very strong, I, I would say there's less of a sort of emphasis that I've seen on an under on a sort of overarching philosophy. There's a and th- this one is is more directly related to us because we've actually we've partnered with him. He is working with Kindred Harvest, uh, which is our our new uh, natural, really sort of industrial contaminant free uh, food company, starting with teas that are plastic-free and glue-free and heavy metal-free, uh, adding other lines. I think we'll be adding honey that's glyphosate-free. All of those are, are are trends that I think recognize, on the one hand, a skepticism about 
uh, what the industrial food and health apparatus has told us. As people lose trust in institutions, you start to lose trust in institutions that have told you it's safe to eat things with this degree of heavy metals. It's safe to eat things. It's safe to safe to eat plastic. It's safe to eat glue. I mean, these are things that humans did not ingest uh, in any significant quantity, if at all, for the vast majority of history. And now we're doing so. Now we have a lot of problems. Someone who comes out and essentially offers uh, both explanations for how those things can actually lead to to problems we see, such as obesity uh, and a lot of other disease. Uh, and starts to offer practical suggestions on how to avoid those. Uh, that is appealing. That's a very basic. Uh, it's a very basic set of concrete actions you can take to free yourselves of things that you have reason to be skeptical of. Uh, I, I don't think we necessarily know for certain the consequences of those things, uh, of those sort of industrial contaminants. But we know that. But we know we don't trust the people who have told us that they're safe. And we know that those people have lied to us in other contexts. So someone who can come out and start offering a program uh, in life that involves uh, living in a more natural more uh, way, in a, in a way that is uh, certainly, I guess, more robust to the potential, potential dangers of those, is going to be appealing. And again, does so in a way that is, uh, it does so in a way that is just re- refusing to play the regime's games. I mean, the left has been... I don't know if you've seen these articles, but over the last year, there's been a spate of articles talking about how bodybuilding is fascist, right? Farmers markets are fascist. Uh, All of this stuff is now being labeled. Anything that displays a skepticism of of this technocratic regime is suddenly being labeled Nazi or fascist, which is just comical. I mean, farmers markets, fascist, right? So, so you end up with someone who just, and instead of being afraid of that, again, this is the goes to the, the the self-confidence, instead of being afraid of that, just mock it. And I think that's, people respond well when someone mocks the uh, the censors, when they mock the Pharisees of our day. Yeah, and I think that's a big, uh, I've seen a lot of people in the, you know, identified in the Christian camp, Jake Medor and people like this, who've been really been pushing against, almost like, a, this is the way I read it, I want to get your take, but like, Oh yeah, you see these people they're associated with that guy, he's bad. We've got a guilty by association. And so but but that we're going to throw those to the wolves. It's a it's an interesting dynamic. So uh even Salon I think it was ran an article on Jake and you know, he he's got sort of I guess a soft complementarian type position. Uh, it would be soft in my view at least. Um and they're calling him like an authoritarian fascist, you know. So his response and a lot of the regime evangelical response is, oh, let me show you some people who are worse. And by the way, they're, they're you know, they, they read BAP or they read Ren or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, so I wonder, I'm thinking with somebody like Jake or the regime evangelicals, a mix of both. Why are these guys, why is our camp, why is any association with them? Why do they think it's so volatile? And ultimately, I think, why do they think it's a threat? So I think Jake is, uh, Jake is sort of, it, He's profoundly disturbed in probably a range of ways. I mean, I think there's sort of a there's a self-loathing there. There's a rejection of in a sense, he's a man without a culture, a man without a country. I mean, he even look at how he dresses. He doesn't even dress like a normal person in Western attire. And I think it comes from probably a sort of rejection of his home culture 
and yet he has this ideology that, is, or he has this this value system that celebrates sort of rootedness in certain ways. And I'm sure there's just a profound cognitive dissonance there that leads to all sorts of uh, just there's just all sorts of disturbed and and sort of chaotic reactions. And I think you combine that, and this you noted the salon thing, the salon attack. Uh, what really stood out to me there is when he responded to that. He responded with a really sort of offhanded defense of his statistical methods or something like that, or the study. It was something really minor rather than a condemnation of Salon's moral framework as evil. Look, if someone comes after me like Salon did, I would say your moral framework, the, the, the moral system you use to attack me is evil. I don't care what you say because you are evil. Uh, Jake instead is too cowardly to condemn them for their attack on him, uh, which I think displays, again, a profound, uh, probably lack of confidence, even in the goodness of his own moral framework. So instead, he turns around and he says, okay, well, let's let, let's accept your moral framework. By your moral framework, here's a bunch of people who are even worse. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to condemn them. So he's essentially endorsing, he's endorsing the moral framework that has been used to condemn him rather than condemning it. And that's just, that's I think that's cowardice. And I think it's probably a... Uh, a lack of a lack of self confidence born of a self loathing, and I think the I think a lot of the evangelicals it's probably less extreme than Jake. I mean, many of them are actually somewhat successful, moderately successful, according to uh, short of regime metrics at least. They they have uh, decent degrees, they have decent sort of careers, they're decent looking, whatever. In, in many cases, I think in their case, they're sort of more straightforward. Uh, they're comfortable people and they're collaborating with the uh, they're they're very happy to collaborate with the regime and uh, they're ha- they're very happy to uh, they're very happy to use the regime to go after their enemies. I mean, just as I uh, just as uh, when uh, the Pharisees condemned Jesus to uh, to the Romans, they said we have no uh, no king but Caesar. Uh, they are. They're essentially looking to denounce their rivals within the movement, and they're looking to use the regime to uh, – they're worried that the rivals are going to upset the comfortable relationship that they've been able to build with the dominant regime that allows them to maintain, a, even if subordinate, at least at least fairly comfortable position. And so they choose to denounce those rivals to the regime, and they choose to uh, – they, they, they choose to use that. Uh, denunciation to to essentially use the regime to dispatch their rivals within the evangelical world. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. That's really profound. Uh, one of the things I was going to ask you too is, uh, I know Aaron Wren had written about Tim Keller and his uh, renewal of Church in America and this shift away from complementarianism to anti-fundamentalism. I want to get your thoughts on that. Do you think that's happening? Do you think it's at play here? And if so, how do you think the rest of us who are not part of that movement we're not going to embrace the anti-fundamentalism. Uh, how, how do we respond to it? So do I think it's play here? I think absolutely. I think in many ways what Aaron described is a very natural and pervasive dynamic where what they are they're, – what they're attempting to do is what I just described here, which is they're attempting to, they're attempting to find a way to separate themselves from the people who are the, they they have a stance that fundamentally is based on 
uh, on making peace with the regime. I like to say it's sort of, it's probably what a state church would look like in a communist country. Like you go to the the state churches in China, and I don't think those churches are in, I wouldn't even say they're entirely false in their doctrine. I mean, you can probably go there and you can probably hear something that's relatively, relatively in line with Christianity versus most of what you'd hear. But they're going to, they are going to, at the very least, not talk about the things that you're not supposed to talk about. And so I, I think that there's sort of a trajectory where you see a lot of the uh, the establishment evangelicals uh, finding ways to keep evangelicalism within the bounds uh, that would uh, that would make it acceptable to the regime. Uh, Anti fundamentalism is a tool to attack uh, those who are outside. I would say that's one. There's two. There's anti fundamentalism, and then there's there's sort of uh, I think there's the other tools where they denounce them. At, I think the fundamentalism one is interesting because it's classically been sort of a, a a line of divide within evangelicalism. I think evangelicalism itself sort of originated in a division from fundamentalism. So you could almost see that as a more internal that that's sort of a more internal means of separating themselves, uh, whereas uh, a, a denouncing them uh, for sort of regime popular sins is is more like denouncing them to the Romans, let's say. So I think you see both of those. You see both of those dynamics, and they're probably mixed. It depends on the case. They may be very opportunistic about those. I think one thing Aaron Wren pointed out that's key is there's really no meaning. There, there, there's no sort of clear or meaningful definition of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is is something that they recognize as a threat or dangerous. Uh, I think the way he used, uh, I mean, the, the way he used that article about winsomeness uh, to talk about this sort of showed how ridiculous uh, a lot of it is. So I think that they'll opportunistically use both of those, uh, both of those means, depending on what's likely to stick. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth into future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact private family banking partner Chuck De Laderante at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street, and avoid the coming banking meltdown, go to the link in the show notes for more information. Yeah, it also seems like with the evangelical establishment, at least that portion of it, it just has to feel like the wheels are coming off. I don't know if if you have the same read on it, but but my anticipation would be that means that there's going to be sort of a, a power and influence vacuum on the right for a lot of people to potentially pick up. I've kind of wondered if Mark Driscoll isn't trying to hit on that. Um, he's come very strong with a lot of like the anti-woke messaging of late. So it's like you see all the people he used to be aligned with going left, and now he is completely rebranded, going right. Um, so so I'm curious if you see that, A, do you think it's crumbling? And B, do you think it creates a power vacuum that has to be filled? So it absolutely creates a power vacuum. I mean, there's no question that, uh, there's no question that, the evangelical establishment has lost a vast 
vast share of its influence and its power. Now, much of that, I think, has been ceded effectively to to a increasingly totalitarian regime. So for a lot of people who would have been loyal to the Gospel Coalition, they're probably now taking their cues from people who are outside of the church altogether, or who are certainly at best, sort of much, much more liberal Christians, uh, so-called Christians. Then within the conservative church, I think there's a tremendous power vacuum. Now, does that is that necessarily going to be filled by other sort of analogous influencers? Maybe, maybe not. I think to some extent that could be filled by local pastors. It could be filled by a lot of different structures. It, it's not, there, there's no guarantee that it's a power vacuum that will be filled by sort of a like-kind alternative, but maybe with a different set of views. Driscoll... I don't want to comment too much on Driscoll. I'm not. I'm not extremely familiar with Driscoll's. Uh, I've seen him on Twitter a little bit. I haven't been following him closely, so I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to do. I think he's certainly, you know, he's certainly a very, very savvy person at recognizing what people will respond to. I mean, he was without question, he was incredibly effective uh, as a communicator uh, when he was in Seattle, and he was he was effective. I've heard many, many people who speak very positively about how he how he reached them. Uh, he knows how to, I think, he knows how to read the moment and recognize messages that people need to hear, that they, that they want to hear. Uh, in terms of the substance of what he's he's saying right now, I, I, I don't know. I know Aaron has been critical of some of, uh, some of what he's said and some of what he's done. I was never, I, I never listened to him very much. I never, for whatever reason, I wasn't one of the people that his message resonated with, even in his heyday. It's possible that he's, Learned from, uh, learned. He, he's he's learned from some of what may have been errors or mistakes in the past, and he actually has a message that's meaningfully improved. He he may he may read the moment, but make some of the same mistakes over again. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. Uh, one of the things I want to do as we move to a close is just ask you. Uh, there's been a lot of I feel like I've heard this a lot uh, from a lot of people on the right. Maybe a lot of people don't know where it comes from, uh, but this expression that we have no enemies to the right. You shared an article by Charles Haywood talking about this. So I, I wonder if you would just unpack that. What does that mean? Uh, I'm sure some of us are probably using it uh, in a wrong way, but um, how, how do you see that idea and, and how should it play out? So I was having some discussions about this. Uh, I was having multiple discussions about this this morning. Uh, I think the key is, uh, the key to understanding that concept is understanding understanding what an enemy means. An enemy ultimately is someone who you are trying to destroy. You're trying to, uh, whether it's politically or economically, destroy them, remove their power, remove their ability to remove their ability to do anything to you. Uh, I think that that's very different than uh, that, that's very different than a sinner. It's very different than someone who is wrong, who's teaching something that's an error that needs correction. An enemy is someone you're trying to destroy. And uh, the left is united in treating us as enemies. The, the left is extremely powerful and is trying to destroy us. So I certainly don't feel the need to uh, pick uh, enemy-level uh, fights with people who are not on the left, who are not part of that. You don't you don't want to make any more enemies than you need to right now. Uh, I think some people, I would say, extend that to don't criticize anyone on the right. I think that's that 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 gets risky. It's often a prudential question. I mean, why you don't need to nitpick. You don't need to criticize everyone who's wrong uh, on the right. I think we should focus our energy at the left. At the same time, I think there's room for 
vigorous debate, both about what's prudent, what's effective, and what's right and wrong. I mean, there's still questions of what's right and wrong, and there might be errors that would be associated with the right that are wrong. Uh, what I would say is, uh, don't attack them in leftist terms. Look, if someone if someone has a view that I disagree with that would be associated with the right, let's call it associated with the far right, so they're even sort of to my right, uh, potentially, depending on how you define those terms. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna denounce them the way a leftist would denounce them, uh, which a is is reinforcing the leftist moral framework. B, it's also creating a real likelihood of bringing down much, much stronger and disproportionate harm to them. Uh, because we have a society where certain types of denunciations destroy someone's livelihood. They destroy their they destroy their job. They destroy their credibility. They destroy their livelihood in a way that's vastly disproportionate to what would be appropriate, even if they are in fact in fact wrong on that issue. And so, I, I would I, I'd happily talk with them. Maybe I do it privately. Maybe I do it if we're doing it public. I do it in a sort of very careful way. Uh, but I don't think we I, I don't think we can't discuss those issues. I think it's important actually for us to have pretty vigorous discussion about a lot of tough issues that have been suppressed in liberal society. And whatever position is most opposed to liberalism is not necessarily the right one. It's it's worth discussing. So it's not that we can't debate or criticize ideas to the right, uh, but we don't treat them as enemies. We don't try to destroy them is, uh, is the key point. Yeah. And when you're thinking of enemies on the left, like where are you aiming specifically? Like what is it ideas on the left? Is it movements, regime? What? I mean, enemies are people. Enemies are not just ideas. I think the uh, the key thing to, to realize is there are people who are trying to destroy us. There are people there are people trying to put Trump and his lawyers in jail. Those people are enemies, not just the ideas that motivate them. They should be removed from power. They should be they should be punished. They should be. Uh, eliminated in their ability to to do that and an example made that prevents other people from doing it. So uh, I think where am I aiming particularly? Uh, I, I'm focused on the domains that I'm operating. I mean, part of it is I'm operating in business. So I'm not day-to-day necessarily focused on enemies. I am day-to-day focused on building businesses, building a fund, helping build up our, our economic ecosystem. Uh, obviously, we have enemies to the left who have declared war on us, right? Jake Midor has declared war on us in a sense. He he has made clear that he's going to keep coming after us. I mean, that's, that's, you, you, you can't entirely ignore that. Uh, you, you have people who are, uh, I think you have people who are, maybe they're not focused on us today, but they're doing things that would absolutely uh, destroy us. There's a lot of people, I think, in the Justice Department who want to build up a narrative of domestic extremism that they would define in a way uh, designed to encompass us that would allow them to direct the full power of the state against us and destroy us. Those people are without questions enemies. Now, the prudent way to deal with that might be to operate, it might still be to operate through conventional political channels to try to remove their power, to have the House Republican committees investigate them. There's a lot of prudential questions around how you deal with an enemy, who you choose to focus focus on at a particular point, but it's very clear. I mean, look at there's there's a lot of there are a lot of sort of ideological enemies, and and with that sort of leaders. I mean, it's given the nature of the regime, it's not necessarily neatly wrapped up in in one person or anything. But there are there are lots of people who 
very clearly want to destroy our 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 culture, destroy our way of life, uh, destroy any sort of nation. They want to send millions of people across the border to uh, essentially invade our country. Uh, I would say those people are are rightly considered enemies. And how we respond to them versus the many many other priorities we face is is an important prudential question. But if we don't recognize that they are enemies, then we uh, we certainly aren't prepared to even consider that calculus. Yeah, I think that's really really helpful. Uh, well, Nate, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, for people uh, who want to follow along with what you guys are doing, obviously we'd recommend uh, checking out the podcast, New Founding Podcast. We'll provide links for that in the show notes. Any other big projects that you'd like to highlight? Well, I uh, I mentioned the fund. Very very excited about that. Uh, it's uh, it's something that and it's something that's going to be open. I I we haven't announced or publicly launched it yet, so I won't say a, a ton about it. But we are we are seeking startups that are. Uh, so the way to describe what we're doing fundamentally is we we back companies uh, where our understanding of the political and cultural moment and our connections within the right wing ecosystem make a material difference. So it's not just a company that has a Christian owner. Uh, it's not just a company that sort of culturally values aligned, although that that can be an important component. But for us, our focus is on those where that makes a material difference in the business itself. The, it's key. It's selling to people on the right, let's say. It's selling a product that would be a key piece of infrastructure. So we're always looking to talk to, to founders and, and companies in that space. Uh, we're always looking. We, we're interested in talking to investors who are interested in investing in that space. Uh, we, we do advisory work for them. Uh, and then we, we continue to do talent placement. So we are building a, we're continuing to build out our talent network. And we have a great pipeline of people who are very eager to make a move into companies that, that are values aligned. And that would be a broader array of companies. That would be any company in many cases that is not going to have a woke uh, leftist culture. And we are, uh, we are placing people, often professionals, executives, very, very strong people, uh, eager to move to companies like that. So uh, really think of it as uh, serving the key sort of high value needs of businesses in our space. Awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you can go to new, you can check out our website, newfounding.com. We talk about those. Uh, we'll talk about all of this there. And then you can check out my Twitter. Certainly. I talk about all of this there. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Nate. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate this. Enjoyed talking. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. And special shout out to our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, you can join today for as little as $5 a month. And that definitely helps keep this work going. We are glad to partner with you for content that builds a new Christendom and reclaims biblical masculinity at the same time. You can check the show notes for the link to become a Patreon supporter of the Hard Men podcast today. Stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. Thank you.